From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in Los Angeles in the mid-1960s. A young student was on his way to becoming a doctor, and it was at a time, of course, when, well, it was before Roe v. Wade, abortion was still illegal, many states were talking about how to do it individually, but that was the landscape at the time. Victor Polishuk would finish med school in 1967, and by then he had seen some pretty harrowing things. During his GYN rotation, he would see a similar pattern. When weekends would wind down in L.A., women would start showing up at the practice that he was working at, and they had traveled across the border to Mexico to have abortions. Some were suffering from infections or other problems. Victor came to Rochester in 1967 to do an internship at Strong Hospital, and then he served two years in Vietnam, 1968 to 1970. When he returned to Rochester in 1970, he would spend four years doing his residency, and the landscape on reproductive health was about to change dramatically. Roe v. Wade came before the Supreme Court in 1971. The 1973 decision opened up access to abortion for countless women in this country. And Dr. Polishuk might have thought, well, he might have thought back to those women he met in Los Angeles who had gone out of the country to have an abortion, some getting dangerously sick as a result. He says he learned early in his career that when abortion was against the law in this country, it did not mean that women did not have them. It meant that wealthy women could have essentially whatever they wanted. Women who were not wealthy pursued a range of options, even if it meant risking their own health. Dr. Polishuk opened his practice in 1979, Westridge OBGYN. Now, abortion was not the primary work he was doing, although he estimates he performed one or two per week. These were surgical procedures because the so-called abortion pill was still against the law in the United States, unlike in Europe. What he could not have anticipated was the occasional protest or death threats scribbled on odd postcards and often not signed by name, or the break-ins or the news that a colleague had been murdered in Buffalo when an armed gunman shot Dr. Barnett Slepian through the window of his own home. It sent shockwaves through medical offices across the country. But Dr. Polishuk did not expect Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And when it was, we asked him to share his experience in his practice and a 30-year career in western New York, and he's gracious enough to be here to do that. Dr. Victor Polishuk has asked me to call him Victor. I'm going to try to follow his directive. Victor, it is nice to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, one correction. Okay, yeah. I served I served in the military during Vietnam. I didn't go to oh, Vietnam. Oh, okay. Well, that's important. But, yeah. but served from 1968 to 1970. Correct. Okay. Um, let me start by asking you if you can take us back to the mid-1960s. Yes. And you remember those, maybe your first time really understanding what was happening you described to me on the phone encounters with women who would cross the border. And can you describe more of that, what that was like for our listeners? So, yes. Um, at that time, medical school was, uh, traditional medical school was two years of classrooms and laboratories. And then third year, you started your rotations on various services. My third year rotation on the OBGYN service uh, is when I became aware of what was going on. And that was, uh, as you described it, um, Mondays or Tuesdays on GYN, we would admit women who had been across the border over the weekend to have an abortion and either were incomplete and needed a surgical completion uh, or worse, uh, were infected. And uh, the worst I saw was a girl, I don't remember exactly how old, 15 or 16, who had a hysterectomy to save her life because of infection. How did that 
affect you? Well, it was also during that time that I made a decision to go into OBGYN as a career. It affected me profoundly. Uh, I couldn't understand why we didn't have legal abortion. At the time, you're right, it was a conversation, uh, and we were moving toward it state by state. There was a movement in, in California. It was actually in 67, as I was finishing medical school, that abortion became legal. Um, and it just made so much sense to me that it ought to be. Had we not seen Roe v. Wade argued starting in December 1971, decided in 1973, was it your expectation that states were going to continue to piecemeal the approach to it? Yes. And beyond that, there are people who believe that Roe v. Wade should never have been decided. Uh, among them was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, it was the process that was going on that was a political process at the time, state by state, which some people thought would ultimately wind up with a federal law per, uh, permitting abortion at some level in some way. Um, rather than that happening, the whole process was stopped when Roe v. Wade was decided and uh, the political uh, acceptance of abortion never occurred. It was done judicially. And that way, um, it's, a, it's kind of a strange question, but do you think then that Roe had an unintended consequence that in, injured a path to some sort of political reconciliation on the issue? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't think I'm confident to make it, to, to answer it. Um, I, I could just, I, I was there at the time when this was happening, and, and it certainly seemed state by state like we were getting there, but I'm sure there were a lot of states where we would not have gotten there. So um, it, if it had ended in a federal law at the federal level uh, permitting abortion, that would have been a different issue. We're going to work our way through parts of your career um, that I think are important to, to discuss and we're going to get to where the country is now. I want to say to the listeners that part of the reason we're, we asked Dr. Polishuk to come in is um, he's well-regarded by colleagues. Um, he was kind enough to answer our phone call. <laughs> um, but, but there are not many conversations that I can recall with people who work in OBGYN who started before Roe, spent their career uh, for decades post-Roe, and are now able to kind of discuss um, a, a post-Dobbs decision landscape. So that's part of why we're here. This is a career that is seen a lot. And in the 1960s, when you were considering what path you might take, did you at any point think, well, you know, I'll get an OBGYN, but it's probably going to be fraught. There, there may be some tense moments. I may feel threatened at times. I may actually have physical threats. Did that occur to you in the 60s? Not at all. Uh, it was not on my radar at all. Um, I did not think that as a gynecologist I would be in any kind of uh, trouble or, or, or risk myself. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. I, I was at risk, it turned out. But um, no, I saw OBGYN as a career that put a couple of things together that I really um, didn't realize until I did that rotation uh, were there. I, I really wanted to be a primary care doctor and see people over a long period of time develop long-term relationships with people, but I also wanted a surgical specialty, and uh, OBGYN was the one that pulled it together for me in that way. Abortion, uh, in my thinking at the time, was a very minor part of it. 
I think you told me throughout your 30 years in private practice, one to two abortions a week was an average. Is that right? Yeah, we were not an abortion clinic in right. my practice. Right. We provided abortions for our patients. and um, but It wasn't the bulk of the work you were doing. The bulk of the work I was doing was regular OBGYN practice, right, right. seeing pregnant women and seeing gynecologic patients, yes. I, I, I just ask that because sometimes people use the term abortion doctor, and that gets used as sometimes a slur for those who op- oppose abortion rights. Um, but um, I just wanted people to understand what what your career consisted of. And, and I, wh- I have no problem with the name. You have no problem with the name. Okay. No. Okay. Um, but you came to Rochester came to Strong. I came to Strong for my uh, post-MD uh, training. I did my internship and my residency at Strong. And what were your first impressions of Rochester? Um, I didn't have many because I was so busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I came for the program at Strong, but we wound up staying in Rochester because I loved the community. I, I grew to love it. And um, my wife and I made a very conscious decision to settle here and raise our family here. Well, and you know, so people may forget, Roe gets decided in 1973, but New York, California, different states were moving on abortion laws in different ways. And there was, of course, debate in different states about this. Just as today, post-Dobbs, we now see 20, 22, 24 states that have already significantly restricted uh, or partially restricted or almost totally restricted abortion access. So do you think that your own decision on where you would go would have been decided, had Roe never happened in the 70s, how much would you have been thinking about the importance of being able to practice in in states that did have abortion legal access? I think it would have mattered to me, yes. I think I I wanted to be able to provide a complete range of OBGYN care, and to me that's an important part of OBGYN care. And to follow up on what you just said, the, the ramifications of Dobbs uh, are going to be felt for a long period of time in those states that do not allow abortion because um, I'm aware of some doctors uh, who uh, have moved out of those states, but more importantly, uh, young doctors are not going to want to move into those states. I'm aware of at least one specific example of one of our graduating residents who had a nice opportunity in Texas and didn't take it um, because she was not able to provide a full range of care in Texas. Yeah, I... I'm not sort of educated enough, smart enough to know if the cultural and political divide in this country is such that that divide will also exist in the OBGYN field and there will simply just be a natural sorting of doctors who support abortion rights working in states that allow abortion and doctors who don't. I don't know. I, I wouldn't know how the numbers match up. I wouldn't either, but it it goes further than that. The implementation of some of these laws has been such that doctors are afraid to practice ordinary OBGYN so that when a woman is having a miscarriage um, but hasn't finished it and on ultrasound there may still be a heartbeat even though she her water may be broken, she may be bleeding and so on, the proper thing to do because that's what technically is called and in, uh, the word abortion has many different kinds. We're talking in this program about induced abortion, but spontaneous abortion is the word that's used for miscarriage. And the situation that I just described is something that's called an inevitable abortion. This is a pregnancy that is going to be lost, period, the end. But in those states, the doctors are afraid to complete 
the 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 procedure um, because the, the uh, fetus may still have a heartbeat, and that puts the mother at incredible risk. That's not a hypothetical. We've already seen yes such stories, and later this month, we're going to be having a, a conversation on this program about some of the ramifications of those laws. Again, it's it's not hypothetical. Even when it is hypothetical, and you ask lawmakers in different states, well, should a doctor be able? It, some of the responses I have found to be remarkable, uh, how unyielding, and I can't imagine that some doctors would feel comfortable risking their practice or risking what is perceived to be apart from the law. So I don't know what the, what the solution will be in those states. No. I, 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 I don't know where that's going. We're going to come back to Dobbs and, and the future of care um, in, in just a bit. We're talking to Dr. Victor Polishuk. Victor is retired, 30 years in private practice as an OBGYN in, uh, right here in uh, the Rochester area, and began his training in the 1960s before, um, before Roe, before abortion was largely legal and accessible, and is telling us about a career that has seen a lot of change. If your career had started in 1979 here in Rochester with Westridge OBGYN, with the abortion, the so-called abortion pill being legal, mm-hmm. how different would the work that you did, how different would that have been? Um, it would be considerably different. Um, the surgical abortion, which we did in the office in, in er- very early pregnancy, um, had advantages and disadvantages. Um, it was over all at once. Um, and uh, women didn't have to uh, worry about what was going to happen uh, at home down the road. On the other hand, um, the medical abortion has made everything easier. I was speaking to m- one of my former partners the other day. Um, it, has, it was a game changer when it became available um, you could offer patients either one or the other, and it was a very nice thing to be able to do. Um, do you remember the debate about that? Because Europe, of course, was, a, was ahead of, way ahead of the us. United States in, in the legalization of it. It became a big political issue in the late 80s and then into the 90s during the Clinton presidency. Do you remember Correct. those times? I'm Absolutely. sure you do. I'm sure Abs- you do. Absolutely. How, uh, <laughs> how sophisticated was the public discourse about the so-called abortion pill? Not at all. Not at all sophisticated. There was no nuance to it at all. You know, it was it was to be condemned by those who condemned it and to be praised by those uh, who found it something very, very wonderful. How long after you opened your practice in 1979 did you have your first threat? Um, it was a long time. Um, it was... The it late, wasn't right away. It was not right away. It was the late 80s. Um, there was a um, time when anti-abortion activism in the mid-'80s became uh, much greater than it had been before, and I'm not sure what triggered that. But there was a lot of it going on, and there were uh, invasions in other cities. There had never been one in, in, in Rochester. And then one day, um, our office um, was invaded. Uh, nine ministers in Greece— my office was uh, on Westridge Road in Greece— Nine ministers uh, came to the office. Actually, there were 15 or so. Uh, some of them sat outside one of our ancillary doors, one of the side doors, and just sang. Nine of them came in and uh, invaded our waiting room and refused to leave. Um, 
singing and chanting and uh, disrupting everything that was going on at the time. Uh, the police came. Uh, the police were wonderful. Uh, four of the ministers refused to leave under police orders. Uh, they all were charged with trespass. Those four were charged with resisting arrest, and they had to be carried out of our office. And they did indeed interrupt, uh, I think one abortion was scheduled that morning, maybe two, I don't know. But they did interrupt our, our functioning, and we had to put them off for a day. Um, what was the effect on you? Because this is in the late, mid-late 80s? This was 1988. 1988. What was the effect on, on how you considered the safety of your practice, the safety of your patients? How did that affect you? At that point, I didn't feel unsafe. I just felt angry. Um, I felt that they were interfering with my ability to practice and my patients' abilities to get the care that they wanted to get. It wasn't until after that that my physical safety came into into question. It was several months later. Um, listeners may remember, or you, or, or, or may not. So, starting in the late '80s, into the '90s, the movement that Dr. Polishek is talking about became more aggressive in its rhetoric and sometimes more violent. Correct. And throughout that time, there might be threats. And um, look, when you're a when you're a public figure like I am, I mean, you're used to the fact that people can contact you. Uh, people can say whatever they want on a postcard or these days in an email or different communications. Um, sometimes people are angry and they just want to vent. But... By 1988, when that first invasion of of your office happened, by then, were you getting any, anything in the mail at times, and did that change into the 90s? Yes, we would always get something in the mail, just accusing us of being murderers and things like that. Um, you had to develop a little bit of a thick skin. But at no time during that period of time did I feel unsafe physically. When did that change? Or, or I mean, obviously there was a series of... Of, of shootings and including a murder yes, that listeners may remember or may not know about. Well, that, that, those things started to occur in the mid and late 90s. Yep. And um, there was a gynecologist in Rochester um, in the late 90s, I forget what year it was, who was shot at in his home um, at night when he was easily able to be seen. He was not wounded seriously. But then in 1998, a Buffalo gynecologist who performed abortions, Barnett Slepian, was murdered while standing in his kitchen uh, by somebody who shot him from outside. He had, that afternoon, this was October 1998, he had just returned from synagogue where he was attending a memorial service for his own father and had come home was shot, um, the way it's described, there was a small stand of trees in his suburban neighborhood and someone hiding among trees um, seemed to know where he would be and how to get a good shot at him and shot him. That person was James Charles Cop, who fled. He was arrested in France several years later and would tell a jury that he, he represented himself at trial. He didn't think it was murder because his intention was only to harm a doctor and prevent them from being able to do abortion. If you believe that, okay. But he was convicted and he's serving a life sentence. 
It's believed that he might have been behind the Rochester shootings. Yes, but it's not known that he was. It's not known that he was. What did those events, those events do to your mentality? Well, it terrified us. It terrified all of us in Rochester who were uh, abortion providers at the time. Um, I can't remember which federal agency it was. I think it was somebody from ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. But we had a meeting um, with an agent from, I think, ATF of the abortion providers in Rochester who taught us how to live in the wake of Slepian's murder, um, including things like look under your car before you start it, um, pull your shades and don't stand around your house at night with the lights on, and so on and so forth. It was terrifying. Did you do those things? Yes. Just became part of the daily, daily habit, yeah. It did. Did that b- before you retired in 2009? Yeah. Did that dissipate at all? Oh, yes. Okay. Within a few years, it dissipated. And, okay. Yeah, I stopped behaving that way. I stopped looking over my shoulder all the time, but it was a time that yeah, we did worry a lot. What about staff in your office? How did they feel? Angry. Angry that we had to go through all this. They didn't feel the personal threats. And, you know, I've seen some of the, the pieces of mail that were sent to you over the years describing you in, in the terms, some of the terms that you've used on this program. Um, most of the time they'd be unsigned. You, you don't know where they came from. Did you think most of those threats were just to scare you or did you start to take any of those seriously as your career progressed? I didn't find them specific enough to be scary. I think there were people venting who wished they had the guts to do more than, they, than write, write a letter or a postcard. No, those things, those things may be more sad than anything, that there were people out there who would, who would behave like that. Um, talking to Dr. Victor Polishuk, Victor is kind enough to talk about his career. He served 30 years in private practice uh, as an OBGYN in the Rochester area, trained in, uh, in the mid-1960s to the late 60s in both California and here in Rochester. And um, He's okay, as he says. Victor says he doesn't mind the term abortion doctor or abortion provider, although that was not the bulk of the service that he and his office provided over his 30 years in private practice. Um, but he, say, he obviously saw a lot of change. He saw states starting to address abortion, like California, New York, the passage of o- Roe v. Wade, uh, the intensification and the violence, and now the, the Dobbs decision. In the course of your 30 years, did patients start to feel differently? Did women start to come in a little more nervous or concerned? One of the interesting things about our practice was I don't remember patients very often when they established care asking if I was an abortion provider uh, or not. Um, When they wound up needing an abortion, of course, they would ask. But um, it wasn't. It didn't seem to be important to people to find out up front, or maybe maybe there was a network of of, of, of people who knew, and and before establishing care, they would they would ask. Um, so, I don't know if that answers the question that you're asking. Well, it's sure. And and so w- what I was more familiar with before our conversations on the phone, I knew about Dr. Barnett Slepian, but I you know I wouldn't have been able to remember the date. I didn't remember that there were multiple Rochester area doctors who had been um, shot at, thankfully not killed. Um, and 
what I do remember more of is conversations with, for example, Planned Parenthood, and they will describe, and I think this still happens, people who stand outside those kind of offices, sometimes chanting, sometimes offering um, religious passages and things like that. What do you make of, uh, of that kind of action? Oh, I, I, in fact, I approve of that kind of action. I'm a strong First Amendment believer. Even when it's a patient, a woman walking in for an abortion? No, there are rules about how, I mean, the courts have, have set up rules about where those protesters can be and they have to be on public property. One of the reasons that uh, I found out uh, very third hand, so it may not be accurate, uh, one of the ways that they chose my office to, to invade was because of the geography of my office. We were at the end of a very long driveway, um, and uh, had had they followed the law, they would have had to stay on the sidewalk way at the beginning of our driveway. That's, that was the first invasion, was coming down to our private property um, and uh, uh, going to our parking lot, which was on private property. Um, but I'm a very strong First Amendment believer. I think that people have the right to protest and to march and to stay on pri- public property and uh, express their views. They don't have the right to accost people who are trying to access abortion. Um, I'm sympathetic to people who are very strongly anti-abortion. And I think it, if, if I believed that a fertilized egg was entitled to the same dignity as a human being— I would do everything I could legally to stop abortion. Uh, I don't happen to believe that, but I respect people who follow the law but do what they can to stop it if that's what they believe. I understand that mentality. We had a conversation with a member of the New York State Assembly several years ago who said that abortion was his number one concern in Albany and that if he could outlaw abortion in the state, he would, and he would do it without exceptions. Because he believes it is an act of killing. Um, he's a very affable person, but he said that he doesn't draw a distinction between a small group of growing cells the size of a pinhead versus a human being a, of any age. He doesn't make a distinction. So he views it as an act of killing. He would not allow exceptions, and he would do everything in his power in the legislature to see that happen. He doesn't have a legislative majority. He knows that. But he was honest with us Mm -hmm. about it. And I respected the intellectual consistency of that position, that if you say that you believe it's an act of killing or murder, then I don't understand how you support exceptions. And I've heard it explained to me on this program many times, but I don't think it's consistent intellectually. I think what it reveals is you can say that you think it's an act of killing or homicide or murder. But if you're willing to allow exceptions, what it reveals is you view it as something different. You may view it in aberrant terms, but you view it as something different. It's not consistent. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have heard from the mother of a pregnant 13 or 14 or 15-year-old, I don't believe in abortion, but as if my teenage daughter is somehow special. Explain more of that. I, I think that speaks for itself. The, the mentality that people have that says, I, I oppose abortion, but if my teenage daughter is pregnant, then I, all of a sudden I support abortion? Correct. And you met people like that over the years? I did. Did you have? Did you uh, find it even no. important? What no. Wasn't your, your role no. to interrogate those positions? No. You just observed their change of heart. When it was close to them. When it was close to them. Yeah. There was a... 
a situation I faced once that did change the way I approached patients who presented for abortion. Um, I used to start, <clears throat> excuse me, used to start my conversation with somebody who presented for an abortion by saying, um, I'm sorry you find yourself with an unwanted pregnancy and uh, uh, have you thought it through and so on. And I had this woman once interrupt me and say, this was, a, this was a desired pregnancy. We had planned this pregnancy, but my sister has just announced that she's going to be married in five months and I'm to be the matron of honor, and I don't want to be the matron of honor in a wedding, in, in a maternity dress. So I'm going to abort this pregnancy and get pregnant again in four or five months. Dr. Polishuk is relating a story on the air that you related to us before the program. And, <laughs> yes. And I remember you asked, what, did, what do you make of that? And I, you know, we were sort of taken aback. Right. Um, just as you said you were at the time. Very much so. But then you, you started thinking about it, and what conclusion did you draw? I do believe that that's a frivolous reason to have an abortion, absolutely as frivolous and trivial as it could be. But the conclusion I came to was that if I judge this woman's reason for having an abortion, then that sets me up to be in a position to judge everybody who's having an abortion and to decide for them whether or not their reason is adequate. And when I say it changed my behavior, what it did was it changed the way I approached the woman when I sat down with her to counsel her. And the first thing I would say to people after that was, I don't want to know your reason for having an abortion. I just want to make sure that you've thought it through, that you don't need counseling, that you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I would start the conversation by saying, I don't want to know why. Did you find from that point forward that that was a better way to go through the process? It worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that point about if this is the line that we draw, that this becomes frivolous, so therefore we wouldn't allow it. You know, I think there's plenty of lawmakers who would argue differently, that they would say, no, there should be a, a, a small, you know, you, the, the term you hear is um, uh, r rare but legal. Legal yeah. but rare. Um, and, and I think that there are plenty of lawmakers or advocates who would probably espouse some set of codified standards. You know, that um, obviously many, although not all, would have abortion allowance for rape or sexual assault. Um, but then, you know, I, I, there would maybe be a questionnaire. That, that, and, and, what, and who's the judge? And what you're saying is be careful with that questionnaire. Yes. Yeah. Who's the judge? You know, an awful lot of the women that I served, um, that I provided abortions for, were your ordinary next-door neighbor who already had a couple of kids who were struggling financially. Yes, they could have had a third child, but it would have made a much bigger struggle for whatever reason, whether it was emotional, physical, financial. Um and they felt that abortion was right for them, and I don't feel that I have the right to judge whether or not they're making a decision that's that's appropriate or not. Um, after we take our only break, I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll take a break, and then um, we're going to talk about the current landscape now. But in your career, did you expect to see Roe overturned? No. No, did not. Why? I thought it was settled. And even <laughs> I followed the Supreme Court appointments hearings carefully. And every one of these 
judges, every one of these Supreme Court justices, when they were asked that question, said it's settled. It's settled law. Yeah, that is an interesting point. That does not speak well for the process of justice confirmation. It does not. It makes it a bit of a circus because it's a, it's a sham if the questions, first of all, many of the questions from both major parties are designed to give five minutes to a senator to grandstand and not actually interrogate a position of a possible justice. Correct. And I'm not a fan of that to begin with. But if we're actually trying to get to the bottom of how a justice sees things, it's pretty easy to determine that they were not being forthright. Do you feel that way? I do. Yeah. Very much so. They yeah. did what it took to get on the court. Well, after we take this break, we're going to talk about where things are now. And, um, you know, Dr. Polishek is, is not... Uh, he's not practicing now. He's not going to speak for doctors in practice. He's talking for himself. A 30-year career in private practice here, um, a career that started in training in the, in the 1960s before Roe and saw all the change. You've heard him describe what his career was like. Uh, we'll get back to him in just a second, and, and we'll talk about where this country is right now. That's coming up next. I'm Evan Dawson. Friday on The Next Connections. You've heard workers in nursing homes describing a crisis You've heard members of the New York State Assembly saying nursing homes could soon close if things don't change. So what could turn it around? We explore it in the first hour. In our second hour, it's our monthly preview and review of City Magazine. Always a good time. Talk with you on Friday. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. My guest is kind enough to talk about his career as an OBGYN. Um, and um, part of the work that he provided over the years was to provide abortions. Dr. Victor Polishuk worked in Greece for 30 years on Westridge Road and, um, and now retired, but here in the Rochester area talking about that career. I I'm going to read a couple of emails. Um, listeners, if you want to call the program, it's 844-295-TALK. I haven't mentioned the number this hour because I want to respect our guest. He is sharing his story and his career. Um, and I want to make sure any feedback is constructive. That's not to say that he said I can't be challenged. Victor didn't call me and say, call me back and say, yeah, okay, I'll come out, but no one can challenge me. I mean, part of part of this country is free speech and open dialogue and discourse and tough discourse. And you heard Dr. Polishek say he understands um, people who hold different views on abortion or don't want to see it legal, or supported the Dobbs decision, absolutely understands it, even if he doesn't agree with it. So it's not a matter of nobody should disagree. It's a matter of this. This is literally an issue that has led to threats. And in one case in Buffalo, a doctor from Rochester who practiced in Buffalo, his murder in 1998. So let's be direct and constructive. And um, just reading some of the feedback, Roger says, the threats... And actual violence against abortion providers are a direct result of the evangelical movement in America. You don't see this type of thing in other countries that allow abortions. That is from a that is from Roger. The only thing I'll say before I let Victor answer that, Roger, is it certainly isn't the entire evangelical movement. And thank goodness. Um, and I, we've talked to many guests from the evangelical movement on this program who would never condone murder. Obviously not. I will say this. If you go back and read the accounts of Dr. Barnett Slepian's murder and then the public dialogue afterward, some of the leading 
oppositional movements to abortion that did have a religious grounding at the time, their leadership did not condone or condemn that murder. It was very equivocal language. And in the last couple of days reading those comments, I was shocked. So, Roger, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who's saying, well, not all, not all, and it's not all. But I, I want to let Victor respond if you want. I, I don't feel qualified to respond to that. I don't, I don't know who's out there, who's doing what. And, and I wouldn't want a broad brush. Yeah. You feel the same way? I do. Yeah. Roger, thank you. Um, um, Patrick writes and talks about um, essentially people dying from miscarriages. Um, the concern literally about having to drive to get services and people bleeding out and suffering physically. Yes. Those stories, those stories are coming and we're going to hear a lot more of them. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that because where we are now is, I, I haven't seen the full list of states now, but it's over 20 that very quickly established abortion restrictions or not allowing access at all. Um, it's not a surprise to me that that happened quickly the question is, were you surprised that Dobbs happened? You said you were. Yes. Once it did happen, did you do you remember what you were first thinking when you got the news on Dobbs? I was thinking, here we go again. There are going to be women who are suffering and women who are dying. Mm. Um, but you don't believe fundamentally that this is going to dramatically reduce the number of women who seek abortion. Who seek or obtain? Well, uh, okay, uh, seek, I guess. <laughs> so, well, no, it won't change the number who seek abortion, but it'll change the number who obtain. I think it'll be successful. Women who are locked into their communities, who don't have the uh, resources, whether they be financial or, or support or whatever, to get out, to get to somewhere where you can get a legal abortion, uh, some of them are going to carry their pregnancies, um, and the remainder are going to have illegal abortions, and we don't know what's going to happen uh, from there. It does seem to be the case that people with a lot of financial resources find a way to get what they perceive they need. It's always been the case. And that will be the case, you think? Yes. Um, for, for large states like Texas, I've only briefly been to, to Houston, but I talk to people in Texas and say, until you really drive across Texas, you do not get an appreciation for how large Texas is. Correct. You're living in the middle of Texas. You're living in the middle of larger states geographically, or you're bordering multiple clusters of states in contiguous areas that have restrictions or no allow allowance for abortion. You might have to go a long way to get services. What happens then? I really can't answer that. One of the things that has been a real boon uh, has been the ability of women to get a medication abortion from another state. Um, and I don't know how the laws in Texas or other states that restrict abortion function when a woman goes online and finds a way of getting the abortion pills from another state. Uh, but I, don't, I do know that it exists. I know what happens. Um, so that's perhaps remedy one for that, for that in your mind? Yes. For those women who are early enough to have a medication abortion, you get much beyond nine or ten weeks of pregnancy and uh, medication abortion is no longer feasible, um, there are an awful lot of teenagers who present with their pregnancies uh, beyond that point, hoping, you know, when they skip the menstrual period, hoping that it didn't mean what they're, what they're afraid it means and not 
knowing how to tell anybody that they need that kind of help until they've gotten fairly well into the pregnancy. Um, maybe producer Megan Mack can fact check me on the fly here. I don't remember if it was Missouri, Wyoming, or South Carolina. I don't know why. I've read a lot about changing abortion law since Dobbs. And I, I always want to be careful to acknowledge where I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head. But there's been at least discussion among lawmakers in one of those states that would make it against the law to even Google or search for abortion options, either in other states or to try to order pills, et cetera. So if you're in a state that doesn't allow abortion, there's been at least discussion. I don't know how far legislation has gotten. I haven't seen updates on that. But that would try to prohibit you from even getting on Google yes. to find out where you either could go or where you could get pills. Yes. That's pretty remarkable. Very remarkable. Because you, that's trying to legislate where you even can travel and what you could do when you travel or what the law is where you go. There is one state, and I'm not sure which one it is, where if you just help a woman go somewhere to have an abortion, you can be uh, indicted. Okay. So, uh, again, I want to say to listeners, we are speaking off the top of our heads. This no. requires further examination, and we're going to have a conversation later this month on this program that um, will have a lot more underpinning on the very latest and what the law says and how it's affecting practice, et cetera. But on the subject of practice, you're aware of people who've gotten job offers in states like Texas and decided not going to go? I'm aware of stories like that. I'm aware of one specific one, yes. A person turned it down? Turned it down. In Texas? In Texas. Okay. Um, and... As you said earlier this hour, you expect more of that. I don't know how women in these red states are going to get their OBGYN care 20 years from now when the people who can't leave because they've got established practices retire and others, young ones, are not moving in. I also don't know how residents in those states who are being trained in OBGYN are getting adequate training. Um, the American College of OBGYN has a requirement that if you want abortion training as part of your residency, you're entitled to it. And um, I've read stories of residency programs shipping their residents out to other states for abortion training, to other programs. Remarkable. And yet, since Dobbs, something else that's very perhaps telling or interesting has happened, legisl uh, not legislatively, um, electorally. We've seen seven states now put the question of abortion access before voters in various referendums. So not, not the legislatures, but the actual voters of the state. Started with Kansas, of course, Ohio being, I think, the most recent. Mm -hmm. Four of the seven states are, quote-unquote, red states. All seven have re resoundingly supported abortion access. doesn't yes. matter if it was Kansas or Ohio or other red states. Seven out of seven. That's right. What did you? Th what do you make of that? <laughs> I don't know what to make of it because it's really it, 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 it's it's fascinating to me that we're in this uh, mess of uh, jurisdictions and uh, rules and regulations. Um, I'm very glad that I live in New York. It does say though that, for example, if you live in Kansas or if you live in Ohio, where I'm from, which has become not even a purple state, it's pretty red. the The Ohio State House is very red. The rhetoric there. The, the talk about abortion restriction, very, very strong down the line. You know, if, if, if it's a spectrum of abortion law, Ohio's rhetoric in the legislature of what the Republican-led legislature wants to do is, is quite far down the line. And so two things are happening, Victor. 
The voters of Ohio are electing those legislators, sending them to the state house in Columbus, and those same voters are saying, you can't touch abortion. That's right. So it seems dissonant, doesn't it? No, it doesn't to me. When you put abortion on uh, the ballot as a single issue, there's strong support for abortion rights. When it is just another issue among many that people are looking at in a candidate, it pales in comparison to other things, economics, political act, you know, political uh, orientation, and so on and so forth. That's, that's a very interesting point here because it is impossible to tell the exact impact that Dobbs would have on a presidential election, for right. example. And I think way too many people are way too certain over what Dobbs will mean. I think certainly Dobbs, if you're just looking, if you're putting a political analysis hat on, it's impossible to say that Dobbs wouldn't help the Democrats. It already has, I think. Yes. But it is not going to be on the ballot on its own in November. And so so for some voters, it may be a top issue or very near, and it may be a deal breaker or might be very close. And for others, it might be something that you would easily vote one way if it's on a referendum that we've been talking about, but it's down the list compared to other things. And it, so it's impossible to say. And I don't think anybody knows until we get a little bit better data on that. I agree. But would you be surprised to see any state now, if it's just abortion on the ballot, vote for denying ab- abortion? No, I think if it, if it stands alone, I think it's going to pass anywhere now. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that telling? Yes. Um, let me get Jillian here. Jillian writes to say... Um, uh, you've mentioned how Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a problem with the Roe ruling. I believe it was because she felt it should be a legislative issue. Exactly. In my opinion, she was right, and now we see that come to fruition. I'm wondering what you think about that now. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant when I mentioned her, is that she felt that if it was going to be decided, it was rightly decided, but she felt that the political legis- the political issue should have played out in the legislatures, and... Um, uh, maybe she was right. I don't know. We'll never be able to go back and find that out. Yeah, certainly I don't want listeners to think that the point was that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that Justice Bader Ginsburg um, opposed abortion access. I mean, certainly not. No. Um, but she had very nuanced views on how cases were decided or whether cases should have been brought or what the right sort of mechanism was. So, right. so Jillian, I, I appreciate that email. Thank you for that point. Um, before we let you go, I just want to ask you a couple more things here, Dr. Polishuk. You've talked about what it was like for yourself in the 90s when a colleague in Buffalo was murdered, other colleagues were shot at. I wonder what it was like for your family. Did anybody ask you to stop practicing? No. As a matter of fact, I brought it home. Um, My kids were by then already off in college. But I brought it home and I asked my children and I asked my wife if I should stop doing abortions and make it public that we were not going to do abortions anymore. And they very strongly asked me to continue. Hmm. And now, if, if young students, if people are asking for your counsel onto a, a career path that they might pursue, would you dissuade them from this at all? Not in the least. It was a wonderful career. What about the concerns they have about how the, not only the charged political climate, but the uncertainty with the law, et cetera? Stay in New York. <laughs> you know, stay in a state where you can provide full range of, a full range of services to your patients. What is not getting covered in this story 
or what is what do you want people to understand about this that you worry that maybe gets not brought up enough? I think the history that I saw as a medical student in California, the history of what happens to people who get illegal abortions because abortions are not going away. And women who are desperate, <clears throat> excuse me, to end their pregnancies will do so no matter what. And if we are not able to provide safe and legal care for them, um, that doesn't mean they're not going to go and get their abortion anyway, and they may wind up being harmed or even they may even die as a result of an abortion. Do you agree with the idea that if men could get pregnant, this whole <clears throat> debate would be different? You know, <clears throat> we do live still in a paternalistic society. I'm not so sure I agree with that as strongly as I would have 30 years ago. That's interesting. Well, let's conclude with um, something else that I've been thinking about since you and I first talked on the phone. I have a friend who had an abortion years ago, and she reminds me pretty often that as a journalist, she said, you'd never hear nearly as many stories of women who had abortions as there are women who've had abortions because of the way society treats us, she said. The way people get treated, the way families sometimes treat people within their own families who have abortions, the shame that people carry. And she has told me, we have to remove shame from this. There, the idea that we can just be the moral arbiters of a healthcare decision like this makes it very, very difficult for for women who are going through this process and women who have had abortions to talk about it, to sort of process and deal with it. It can be emotional in a lot of different directions. Can you c conclude with some thoughts about that? What do, you, what do you make of that, Victor? I think that what you're speaking about is turning abortion into a medical question as opposed to anything else. And with the way as we were speaking about previously, the way some people look at abortion as murder, I don't think you're going to accomplish that by trying to make it a medical decision because you'll never be able to convince people who see a fertilized egg as a living human being entitled to the full dignity that all of us have. If you see that, uh, if you truly believe that, nobody's going to change that belief and you're not going to accept abortion. But do you think people can change their views and evolve their views on this? I don't think I'm the right person to answer that question. <laughs> Have you seen people evolve in their views on this over the years? I wonder what's happened to those women who brought their teenage daughters to me who said they don't believe in abortion, but I wonder if they have changed their views down the road, but I sure don't know. That last point, people certainly have changed their views at times, but often when it's very close. Yes. Um, I, I hope you're well. I, I want to thank you for coming in and, and having this conversation. Um, and I know it, it has been a career that you're proud of and that a lot of the, that your patients over the years have been proud to call you a friend and a doctor. Thank you for being with us this hour. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's Dr. Victor Polishai. It's Victor. 
It's Dr. Polishuk. Um, I want to thank our whole team here. It's Rob Braden, Megan Mack, Evan Dawson saying thank you for listening wherever you are. Hope you're a member of Public Radio and you can make a pledge of support for WXXI and supporting what we do here at WXXI.org. It's day four of our membership campaign. We'll talk to you tomorrow.